0: Hi, friends. Welcome back to Have You Met Her, a podcast about amazing women. I'm Paige, and I'm on an adventure to dig into the lives of lesser-known women in history and share some of their stories with you. For the month of May, we're talking about women who were fierce advocates for themselves and others, women who used their passion and drive to establish groups, programs, or awareness and made positive changes in the world to serve the needs of marginalized groups. For this episode, I wanted to learn about a woman who spent her remarkable life fighting for the rights of Native Americans, a marginalized group of people who have faced wars, ethnic cleansing, enslavement, assimilation, and more. She was the first woman elected as chief of a major Native tribe. In that role, she was able to have an amazingly positive impact on her people, the country, and the world. Here's episode 13, Have You Met? Wilma Mankiller. Wilma Pearl Mankiller was born on November 18, 1945, in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. She was the sixth of 11 children, born to Charlie Mankiller, a full-blooded Cherokee, and Clara Sitton Mankiller, who was of Dutch, Irish, and English heritage. Their surname, Mankiller, in the Cherokee language, refers to a traditional military rank. That's like having the last name General or Major in English. The family lived on man-killer flats, land that had been passed on by family, in a small house with no electricity or plumbing. The house was tiny, so the children spent most of their time outside connecting with the earth. It wasn't until later in life that Wilma realized the extreme poverty in which the family lived. They hunted, fished, and planted a vegetable garden to feed their large family, and they also grew and sold strawberries and peanuts to earn money. As an adult, Wilma talked about the difference between being poor in a community of other poor families who tended to share whatever they had, help and support each other, and being poor in a community of haves and have-nots. In Oklahoma, everyone was having the same economic struggles, whether they were Cherokee or not. Wilma's mother, Clara, understood how important the Cherokee culture was and encouraged her children to embrace traditions. Claire even learned, taught, and spoke Cherokee with her children. I want to share with you a few things that I learned while researching the Cherokee people. Originally, the Cherokee Nation extended from what is now Georgia, the Carolinas, Tennessee, and Alabama. Their land was fertile, and their culture was rich. The Cherokees had government before there was even a United States. Their culture was matriarchal, women played a prominent role, Clan membership was transferred through the women, and the women actually owned the children, houses, and property. The men of the tribe traveled, hunting and providing, so it was the women who were always there. Through colonization, where women were viewed as chattel to be owned by man, a shift occurred. When treaties with Britain and the colonies were signed, the Cherokee people were mocked when women elders, along with male elders, were brought in to sign the treaties. In 1830, the Indian Removal Act was signed. Its goal was to move the Cherokee people so that others could come in and grow cotton and tobacco on the land where they were. President Andrew Jackson, who had the reputation as an Indian fighter, charged the US Army to gather up Cherokee families, hold them in stockades, and then have them move to Oklahoma, a journey that is now recognized as the Trail of Tears. During this forced relocation, one fourth of the Cherokee Nation people died. Back to Wilma. When Wilma was 11 years old, her parents decided to move the family to San Francisco, California, taking advantage of the Bureau of Indian Affairs relocation policy, which was trying to move as many American Indians off of federally subsidized lands with the promise of good jobs, safe housing, and plenty of opportunity in big cities. This process was the federal government's attempt to solve the Indian problem by mainstreaming American Indians, scattering tribes throughout the country, and dissolving them into the melting pot of the public. So the Mankiller family moved to San Francisco, California. Wilma calls arriving in San Francisco similar to landing on another planet. She had never seen elevators or flushing toilets and everything was so loud. The man killers had very few Indian neighbors and the family felt alone and unable to fully embrace their tribal identities. She called this move to San Francisco her own personal trail of tears. The promises of good jobs and safe housing also rang hollow Charlie went to work in a factory, and the only available housing that the family could afford was in the notoriously dangerous housing project called Hunter's Point. Wilma and her siblings went to public school, but Wilma hated the experience. Other children made fun of her name and teased her about her clothes and the way that she spoke. She withdrew from everyone and began running away from home. Unsure of how to help support Wilma through this change, her parents allowed her to move in with Clara's parents for a year, spending time at her grandparents' farm. Being there helped Wilma regain some of her confidence. By the time that Wilma returned to her family, they had moved into another neighborhood with a high crime rate, drugs, and gang activity. Wilma made it through high school, and as soon as she graduated, she got a clerical job at a finance company. She enjoyed her job and started participating in social activities for people her own age. At a community Latin dance, Wilma met Hector Hugo Olea. He was from a powerful, wealthy family in Ecuador and was a college student. Wilma found him fascinating and very sophisticated. When Hector proposed to Wilma, she accepted, even though her parents were not thrilled with the match. The newlyweds moved to the Mission District in San Francisco and had two daughters in the next three years, Felicia and Gina. Hector completed school and went to work for Pan American Airlines. Wilma stayed home and focused on her daughters, which was exactly where Hector expected her to be. He was controlling by nature and sexist by culture. It almost seemed that Hector was holding Wilma back from reaching her full potential. As her daughters grew older and needed her less, Wilma looked for new experiences. She started taking classes at Skyland Junior College, classes that were interesting to her. Being part of the group of young people in San Francisco in the 60s was similar to emerging from a cocoon. San Francisco was a place people came to transform, to reinvent themselves, society, politics, music, and art, Everything and anything was possible with revolution in the air. One day, Wilma saw a group of Berkeley students picketing the Ecuadorian embassy. Some cowboys from Ecuador had killed 24 Indians, and the cowboys were not going to be charged or prosecuted. When Wilma heard about the situation, she asked if she could join the picket. It was just one example of Wilma starting to notice the changemakers and social programs in the city. She was especially intrigued with the Black Panther Organization, which is feeding people and helping keep the streets safe. Her own activism was beginning to flutter in her chest. Wilma always knew that she was Cherokee and that it was an important part of who she was. When she met some people from the San Francisco Indian Center, her understanding and appreciation of her culture grew. It was something that she'd been missing. She started spending a lot of time at the center. Here the Indian people could find job opportunities, health care, legal help, and social opportunities. The people that she met there were from many of the different tribes. She made important friendships that lasted her lifetime and learned about standing up and fighting for rights. She was geared up and eager. Then something happened that changed her forever. On October 10, 1969, the San Francisco Indian Center, which had been such an important hub in their community, was destroyed by fire. The community was desperate for a new location to rebuild what was so important to these tribal mindsets. A group of students from UC Berkeley and San Francisco State got together, did some research, and cited a treaty provision that said that unused federal land should revert back to the use of native people. The group decided that Alcatraz Island, which had housed the infamous federal penitentiary since 1934 was surplus land now since the prison had closed in 1963. A group of Indian activists boated over to the island and claimed it, setting up a community there. The group offered to purchase the island from the U.S. government for $24 in beads and cloth. The president set by colonizers purchase of a similar island 300 years previously. The group was fighting for land a place of their own, an end to the termination of Indian treaties and an end to relocation programs. They wanted to raise awareness of continued Native American oppression. Over the next 19 months, up to 1,000 Native American people stayed on the island, setting up a community and standing up and talking about their needs, better healthcare and better education programs. Wilma spent time on the island, but also became a leader of sorts who did paralegal research and would help organize different ways to support the demonstration. During this, which is called the Occupation of Alcatraz, President Nixon signed a bill changing the Termination Act to Self-Determination. For the first time in the federal government's history, they gave land back to Indian people. This changed everything for Wilma. She started to research and learned about land rights and tribal sovereignty. In 1971, Charlie Mankiller died, that was Wilma's father, of complications from kidney disease. The entire family traveled back to Oklahoma for his burial. Wilma returned to California and transferred to San Francisco State University, where she began taking classes focused more on social welfare. She bought her own car and began taking her daughters to Native American events. She also founded East Oakland's Native American Youth Center, where people could come and learn about their heritage. The community showed up and embraced the center, allowing it to become an important community resource. During Wilma's work and travel, she met a group of Pitt River people who were in the middle of a demonstration, reclaiming land that had been taken illegally from their tribe by PG&E, which is the Pacific Gas and Electric Corporation. She met Aubrey Grossman, who was the attorney representing the tribe, and began volunteering with him. She learned so much and was able to work with the tribe to help them gain and maintain their sovereign status. She saw firsthand what neglect, ignorance, and genocidal policies were. This was a fight, But it was a fight that Wilma was willing to learn how to win. She was in, all in. Indian rights were her passion, which meant that her marriage to Hector was out. Wilma moved to Oakland with her daughters and started working as a social worker with the Urban Indian Resource Center. She researched child abuse, neglect, foster care, and adoption in relation to native children. She helped work on legislation to prevent Native children from being removed from their culture, as most Indigenous children were placed with families who had no knowledge of Native traditions. When the Indian Child Welfare Act was passed, it became illegal to place Native children in non-Native homes. Throughout Wilma's time in California, she knew in her soul that she would always return to Oklahoma. She wrote, I had to go back to the land of my birth. The circle had to be completed. In 1976, Wilma decided that it was time for her to take her daughters back home. She headed to Adair County and Mankiller Flats to start a new life. It was a rough start for Wilma and her girls. The home where she had grown up had been burned to the ground, so they spent time living in tents and in their car. Socially, it was challenging as well. Wilma had spent the last two decades surrounded by revolutionaries. She had been inspired by women who were speaking up for equal rights and demanding leadership positions. While Wilma had been fighting and growing, much of the Cherokee nations had stayed the same, They didn't welcome Wilma and all her ideas with open arms. Instead of pushing hard, Wilma started small. With her background in social work and her ability to connect with people, Wilma started meeting with non-elected leaders in the community and asking what their needs were. She re-established herself as part of the community and showed that she was willing to work with people. She volunteered with the Cherokee Nation and helped found a position called the Community Development Department. She worked on housing, rural water systems, bilingual education programs, youth shelters, and programs for the elderly. She had the gift of being able to look for the opportunities that would best help communities grow, thrive, and prosper. She learned to become the steward of a larger community good. She was gaining the trust of her people. On November 9, 1979, when Wilma was driving from Fayetteville back to Tahlequah, she was involved in a very serious car accident. She was hit head-on by another vehicle. Wilma was in critical condition, suffering from broken ribs, a broken left leg and ankle, and her face and right leg were crushed. The doctors assumed that Wilma would never be able to walk again. She had 17 operations to repair all the damage, but the hardest part of all was when she learned that her best friend, Sherry Morris, had been the other person in the other car involved in the accident, and that she and her baby had died in the crash. Wilma worked through her emotional pain and loss, and then worked on her physical recovery. Wilma's recovery was further complicated when she was diagnosed with systemic myasthenia a type of muscular dystrophy. Through all of this, Wilma discovered something. She was no longer afraid of death, but she was no longer afraid of life. This is what carried her forward. During her time in San Francisco, Wilma had been very political. After her accident, she became more focused on services. After a couple of years of hard recovery, Wilma returned to work focusing on how to help the people in her community to help themselves. Wilma's first project back was for the community in Bell, Oklahoma, one of the poorest communities in America. Bell was in desperate need of being helped out of poverty. Grants and federal aid were not helping. Wilma was sent in to meet with members of the community to ask them what it was that they thought was needed. Wilma had her own ideas about what they could possibly ask for. She was thinking maybe a school, but what they asked for was running water. They didn't have any running water. Wilma took their request back to the chief and they together devised a plan. They were gonna use grant money to buy the materials for the construction project and then have the community volunteer their time and energy to do the labor to complete the project. Nobody thought that this would work. Well, nobody but Wilma. She kept showing up and inviting people to become engaged. She enlisted the help of a man named Charlie Soap, who was a Cherokee speaker and worked in the Indian Housing Authority. Wilma said that she banked everything she ever believed on this project. Every obstacle that was in their way, Wilma found a way to counter it aggressively. She had brought the community back together and reintroduced hope and self-determination. And you know what? Belle got their water. Wilma's plan had worked beautifully. She began to use it as a model for other grant programs for other neighborhoods and tribes. Over the next three years, Wilma raised millions of dollars for similar community development programs. Her dedication to improving the lives of Native Americans got her noticed in 1983 Ross swimmer decided to run for his third four-year term as principal chief of the Cherokee Nation and he asked Wilma to run as his deputy chief which is a position comparable to the vice president of the United States Wilma was surprised at his invitation she was a democrat and he was a conservative republican when she brought up her concerns to chief swimmer he said that she was good with money and dedicated to the people she was his choice but not everyone agreed with his choice a lot of people thought that he had lost his mind and used this choice to campaign against him the nation just couldn't wrap their heads around a woman in that kind of leadership position. Wilma reminded the voters that historically, prior to European influence, women had held a great deal of power within their society. As a political team, they received threats and harassment during their campaign, but still managed to win the election, although it was really close. But close or not, they had won, and they were off and running. One of Wilma's duties as deputy chief was to preside over the monthly council meetings in which Cherokees could make suggestions, ask questions, and debate hot issues. Wilma was the only woman at the table and quickly realized that the other people at the table would prefer that she sit quietly. Luckily for Wilma, she controlled the microphones and each time she was interrupted, she would switch off their mics they realized quickly that she was determined to be heard. Under Wilma's leadership, new Cherokee businesses were established and a significant amount of money was raised to expand the Cherokee Heritage Center Museum. Wilma was also instrumental in developing the Institute for Cherokee Literacy and she helped to redesign the voting districts to make sure that rural people had equal representation in their government. Two years into her term as deputy chief, Chief Ross Swimmer accepted a position to head the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Washington, D.C. He accepted the position, which made Wilma the new interim chief, the first woman to hold that position. Politically, this was a challenging time for Wilma since she had risen to her position without a mandate from the people. She said she felt like she had all of the responsibilities with none of the authority. The sexism that she faced was very hard. Wilma said that sexism, like racism, is very dehumanizing. But the meaner people got, the harder that Wilma fought. While she was finding her chief legs, personally, Wilma was joyous. She had decided to get married again to Charlie Soap who had helped with the Bell Water project. They had remained close, and Charlie supported and adored Wilma. Her friends say that they've never known a better pairing. Charlie was the opposite of an Ecuadorian prince, and he was just so comfortable with himself. He was gentle and spiritual, and his manhood was never threatened by how strong Wilma was. It was one of the things that he loved about her. When the time came, For Wilma to decide whether or not she was going to run on her own for the chief position, she felt ambivalent. She was frustrated that she hadn't been able to make all the changes that she had wanted to and she was sick of people criticizing her just because she was a woman. Many people came to Wilma's home to tell her that she shouldn't run. So many that Wilma finally said, if one more family comes by and tells me not to run, I'm gonna run. Guess what happened? Wilma officially entered the race. Wilma knew that this would be a fight. All three of her opponents were well-connected men. Wilma went from town to town, visiting with voters and listening to their concerns. When she said that she would do whatever she could to help them if she was elected, they believed her. They'd seen her already do that. She won the 1987 election with 56% of the vote. Now she firmly believed that she had been chosen by her people and that gave her the confidence to bloom in her role. She said in a speech right before she was sworn in, the issue, at least within the Cherokee Nation, of whether leadership has anything to do with gender or whether gender has anything to do with leadership is settled. I think that we may be a little ahead of the rest of the country in regard to that. During Wilma's first full term, she was able to bring sound businesses into the community. She established a Job Corps center to help train Cherokees and to offer assistance and financial support to new business people. New health facilities were built, a mobile eye care clinic, ambulance services, and a Head Start program were established to help young Cherokee people. When the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act of 1988 was passed, Wilma was cautious about what bringing gambling into their communities would do. She acknowledged that gaming had brought a lot of money into other tribes, but she was concerned about the link between gambling and crime. She also rejected requests for the tribe to store nuclear waste on their lands. She knew that this was not in line with respecting the environment, and no amount of money was worth that. Eventually, after doing her due diligence in research and visiting with her voters, she decided to support bingo parlors for the Cherokee, and it became a major revenue source for the tribe. In 1988, Wilma was recognized with a national award by the Independent Sector, an umbrella group for nonprofit organizations, the John W. Garner Leadership Award. She was praised for her community development projects and her administration of Cherokee Nation Industries. She accepted her first invitation to the White House, although it turned out to be more of a photo op for President Reagan. And she was recognized with an honorary degree from Yale University in 1990 and from Dartmouth College in 1991. Not as much fun as all that recognition. During her first term, she went into kidney failure and received a donated kidney from one of her brothers. In early 1991, Wilma announced that she would seek another term as chief. This time, things were different. Her people knew how much she had done for the nation. She won in a landslide with 83% of the vote. During her inauguration, she took the oath that said in part that she would do everything in her power to promote the culture, heritage, and traditions of the Cherokee Nation. And she did just that. She was the right person at the right time with the right vision to support the nation and gently advance the concept that the nation could be in control of its own future. Wilma's focus during this term shifted a bit, focusing a lot more on the needs of children and youth in her community. She established a mentor program pairing teens with working adults. She established youth shelters, and she believed wholly that the youth especially are our future. We have to be careful That we don't relax too much and watch our future disappear." Wilma also supported promoting women into positions of leadership and management, which wasn't received well. One time, a member of the council told her, you're wasting your time promoting women. They're not really going to be better than average. Wilma responded, well, we've been putting up with average men managers for decades, so I don't know what it will hurt. Wilma was once again invited to the White House. This time, she met with George H.W. Bush. Bush's officials were open and receptive to input from tribal leaders, and Wilma hoped that a new era of government-to-government relationships would follow. In 1992, Wilma endorsed Bill Clinton for president, but did not donate any money to his campaign. She participated in an economic conference in Little Rock and helped his transition team for the presidency. Being involved in non-native politics made her visible to the public and she became the most influential tribal leader in the country. In 1993, Wilma published her autobiography called, Mankiller, A Chief and Her People. It was a wonderful book that I read in preparation for this episode and it also became a national bestseller, so it's not just me. Gloria Steinem, who had become a good friend of Wilma's, said of the book, As one woman's journey, Mankiller opens the heart. As the history of a people, it informs the mind. Together, it teaches us that as long as people like Wilma Mankiller carry the flame within them, centuries of ignorance and genocide can't extinguish the human spirit. In 1994, Wilma was invited by President Clinton to moderate the Nation to Nation Summit. Leaders of all 545 federally recognized tribes in the United States would get together, identify, and resolve issues dealing with jurisdiction, laws, resources, and religious freedom. After being diagnosed with lymphoma, Wilma decided against running for a third term. It was a difficult decision, but she knew that she'd done what she could for her Cherokee Nation. By the time she left office, the Cherokee Nation had grown from 68,000 members to 170,000 citizens during her leadership. The tribe was generating annual revenues of almost $25 million from the variety of businesses that Wilma had built and grown. She had also secured federal assistance of 125 million annually to help with education, health, housing, and employment programs. I think anyone would look at her accomplishments and call her tenure a success. Wilma spent the time after her term as chief as a visiting professor at Dartmouth College where she taught in Native American studies. She traveled on a national lecture tour where she spoke about healthcare, tribal sovereignty, women's rights, and cancer awareness. And she spoke to many various civic organizations. Wilma also suffered a long list of health complications, breast cancer, another kidney transplant, and finally pancreatic cancer. When the doctor told Wilma that she should start chemotherapy right away, Wilma asked why she didn't want to lengthen her pain and suffering. And she knew that she had done what she came to this earth to do. Wilma died on April 6, 2010 at her home in rural Adair County, Oklahoma. When President Barack Obama learned that Wilma had died, he issued the following statement. As the Cherokee Nation's first female chief, she transformed the nation-to-nation relationship between the Cherokee Nation and the federal government and served as an inspiration to women in Indian Country and across America. A recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, she was recognized for her vision and commitment to a brighter future for all Americans. Her legacy will continue to encourage and motivate all who carry on her work. I saw a video clip of Wilma during my research. In it, she says my own role here i think has just been to be here for a tiny tiny period of time in the totality of history and i guess i don't think i leave any great legacy i hope when i leave it'll just be said that i did what i could wilma mankiller did touch millions with her work she fulfilled her promises to live fearlessly and fight for the culture heritage and traditions of the cherokee nation Her pride in her background was beautiful and realistic. She said once, a big part of setting the stage for having people take control of their own lives and solve their own problems is getting those people to believe that they can. Wilma led with a servant's heart and helped the Cherokee people begin taking steps toward realizing that a brighter future, where once again they had the freedom to be masters of their own destiny, was possible. Mary L. Smith a lawyer and former principal director of the Indian Health Services, said about Wilma's service, she was not out looking to knock someone else down. She was looking to move forward, the common good, and I think that everyone in politics would do well to kind of carry some of Wilma's spirits with them today. Ancient traditions call for setting signal fires on hills to light the way home for great ones when they pass away. Indigenous leaders worldwide built fires on mountaintops to lead Wilma home. Fires were lit in 23 countries after Wilma's death. In addition to the books that I read about Wilma, I wanted to share that there is an amazing documentary available on Amazon Prime called Mankiller. If you're more of a watcher than a reader, I would definitely recommend it. It was really great to hear interviews with Wilma in her own words and see her and see some of the people that I found out about during my research. There's also a feature film from 2013 called The Cherokee Word for Water that tells the story of the Bell Waterline Project. This film was in the works for almost 20 years. So Wilma had input on how she wanted to show the story um, and it was important to her that the resilience of Native people be the focus of the film, not her. So it's based on a true story, but it does have some information and inspiration from Wilma. So you can check that out too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please visit our Instagram at Have You Met Her Podcast to see some pictures of Wilma and get a peek at the resources that I use while researching her life. Please rate and review the podcast if you're enjoying it. Apple Podcasts only lets me give myself one rating, <laughs> so I need your help. Giving a five-star rating and sharing what you like about my podcast in a review allows others who might find it interesting to discover it. Please share this podcast with your friends. If you have an idea for a future episode or theme that you would like to explore with me, please email me at haveyoumetherpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe on whatever platform that you use so that you don't miss an episode. I'll see you next week.